Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James Bijan and Alistair Roberts. Jeff Myers, our uh, usual partner in podcasting, is uh, occupied with various pastoral issues at his home church. Uh, so we uh, regret that he can't be with us today, but we uh, look forward to him rejoining us for future episodes. Uh, thank you to Brian Motes, who is our uh, editor and is uh, will get everything prepared so that it can go out to the listening public. We left you with a cliffhanger last week. You might not have realized it was a cliffhanger, but it was. We were in the middle of a discussion of Deuteronomy 22 verses 13 through 21, which is a particular case in the section of Deuteronomy that has to do with the seventh word, thou shalt not commit adultery. And this is the case where a man accuses his wife of not being a virgin at the time that they were married. Uh, And there are a couple of different scenarios that we were discussing. One is that if the charge is false, then there are certain consequences for the man. Uh, The parents and the elders, the girl's parents and the elders of the city get involved. Uh, If the charge turns out to be true, then uh, it's also a public event uh, and uh, the girl is executed. We're going to return to that in just a moment. Um, but I, I wanted to talk a little bit and anticipate what we're going to talk about in the rest of the chapter uh, and some of the, well, I guess, including this first case that uh, Deuteronomy 22 gives us. The rules of marriage that are involved here can seem unusual to us and I suppose by modern standards can seem kind of cruel. One possibility if a, a man falsely accuses his wife of not being a virgin is that he will be chastised, fined, and he can't divorce his wife. Uh, They'll have to stay married their entire lives, Uh, which sounds like a a bad scenario to our minds, bad scenario for both the man and the woman. So the, the evidence that the parents bring forth is persuasive to the elders. Is it fully persuasive to the accusing husband? We don't know, but if it's, if it's persuasive to the elders, then the case is closed and the man has to remain married and can't get a divorce, which seems like he's forced to be in a, in a relationship that uh, he'd rather be out of. Uh, Alistair raised the possibility that this could be a plot for the man to try to get out of his marriage by bringing a false accusation. And if it back, it can backfire so that he not only doesn't get the divorce he's hoping for, but he can't ever get the divorce that he was hoping for. And there are other cases here where at the end, at the end of the chapter, when uh, a man finds uh, verse 20, 29, man finds a woman who, a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged. They lie together. And then when it's discovered, he owes money again to the, uh, the girl's father and he has to marry her and they cannot be divorced. That's uh, also the same rule applies in verse 29 as we find in verse 19. Uh, so again, we have a situation there where, you know, a, a fling, perhaps a man and a girl together, it's discovered and they are forced to get married. They'd rather not be married uh, and they're forced to remain married the rest of their lives. So again, this this seems cruel to us. I think it seems cruel to us because we have a certain vision of marriage and what marriage is uh, that places a heavy emphasis on a romantic attachment, feeling, sentiment, kind of a post-Victorian understanding of marriage as having this kind of, or maybe post-medieval, I think the, the idea of a, a sentimental marriage is already making a making its appearance in uh, in the medieval period. Uh, and I don't want to discount that. That's part of the biblical picture. We have uh, examples in scripture of uh, love of a husband for his wife and vice versa. We have a love poem at the center of the whole canon, the Song of Songs, uh, where the man and the woman express their 
desire, the passionate desire for one another. The Lord himself is passionate in his desire for Israel, and Jesus is passionate in his love for his people, passionate with the passion of the Spirit. And it's been a, a regular feature of biblical of Christian teaching on marriage over the centuries, of course, that marriage is for a variety of things. It's for the procreation of children. It's for uh, mutual uh, support, but it's also for companionship. And particularly after the Reformation, that aspect of companionship and friendship comes to the fore. So I, I think that's a biblical emphasis. I'm not discounting that. Uh, but in these scenarios where marriages have been damaged in one way or another, uh, either the marriage is damaged by a false accusation uh, the marriage gets off to a rocky start because the uh, man and the woman sleep together before they're supposed to, and then they're required to get married. These are situations where there's damage, and the, the biblical emphasis is on the good that the institution provides for both parties, uh, I think both for the man and the woman, maybe particularly for the woman. So you have a woman who is falsely accused uh, of uh, being not being a virgin um, suppose he were allowed to, the man were allowed to divorce her and she becomes a free agent as it were. She still has this kind of cloud hanging over her, even though she you could say she won her court case, but uh, you know, did the parents fabricate the evidence? Um, is the evidence persuasive? There might be accusations and suspicions swirling around even after after the public decision is issued. That doesn't seem like a particularly kind thing to do to her. She might return to her parents' house, but she's uh, not going to be a likely candidate for future marriage if she has that cloud of suspicion over her. So it's for her protection that she stays in the marriage, even though it's uncomfortable emotionally. Marriage is seen as having this kind of structure, uh, and it's uh, and and the structure is provides all kinds of goods to the husband and the wife, uh, and in some ways, particularly protections for the wife uh, that wouldn't be available otherwise. So. Uh, again, uh, I don't think biblical marriage is, lacks sentiment and lacks passion. That's not the picture, uh, but rather it's the the portrait is uh, that there are other goods of marriage other than that companionship. And even when that breaks down, the preservation of the marriage and of the household is valuable. Um, I think the other thing that is uh, intriguing in this, and this goes again to the the way that these laws do provide protections for the women who are involved, uh, the men uh, are are in every case are going to be are forced to take responsibility for their actions. They make a false the man makes a false charge against his wife uh, and it's proven to be false then he has to make uh, has to pay a fine. he gets beaten. that's what chastise seems to mean in verse eight uh, and he has to remain married. Uh, if a man sleeps with a married woman, he risks death if it's discovered. He's, if he sleeps with an engaged woman, whether whatever the whatever the situation, the man is at risk of being put to death if it's discovered. If he sleeps with a virgin, if he's you know playing the field, uh, and his uh, his sexual sexual relation with a particular woman is discovered, then he's married. In in each of these cases, the man is being forced by the way the law is structured to take responsibility for his actions. If his actions are evil, then he takes responsibility by being executed. Uh, if his actions are not the same degree of evil, I guess, then uh, he still has to take responsibility. So it's not as if the woman is being left uh, out of account at all, but uh, I think that one of the one of the accusations against biblical law is often that it's misogynist. But I think the the way that these laws are structured is actually uh, done uh, not just for the good of the of the woman, but um, it forces men into positions of responsibility uh, and uh, protects men because of the 
the way that uh, marriage has a has these protections that are built into it. Yes, I mean, I guess I wonder if a few things could be helpful. I mean, one is that when we look back on these kind of laws, it's not as if we've got a great system of dealing with this kind of thing. It's not as if kind of rape or parents who um, uh, fathers who want nothing to do with their uh, children but just want kind of no strings attached sex and and so forth. It's not like we've got great ways of dealing with these kind of things in in the modern world, you know, and we can look back on these poor attempts. And um, in that respect, I I just wonder if it's helpful to think more um, generally about the concept of what these laws are meant to do. I mean, as Christians, we obviously live in a world where justice will be ultimately done, where where a a perfect judge, God, who has perfect knowledge, will... um, uh, right wrongs, um, compensate, etc. give people their comeuppance. And we've got here, I guess, man's law, in which can only approximate that in, in a situation where, I mean, almost by the definition of these cases, where knowledge is um, partial and fragmentary and where men can't anyway right a lot of the wrongs, where people can't be unraped, etc., and various things can't be undone and and so i guess we've got a, a law which is um which prescribes certain things designed in general to incentivize good behavior to punish bad behavior but of, of course there will be kind of unintended um consequences to a lot of these things and i think in that respect another thing to bear in mind is is that kind of the the burden of the chapter if if, if you like is is to address more than just the sin of one individual against um, another. There there may be children um, arising from what goes on in these um, chapters and often what's um, emphasised. So in verse um, 21, for instance, uh, a woman who has been unfaithful prior to um, marriage, I don't know how this is normally um, translated, she has... um, played the harlot maybe in in her father's house. Um, And the um, case in verse 24 where rape has has taken place, a man has violated his neighbour's wife. Now, I mean, he's, you know, he's done wrong to more than just his his neighbour, but it seems that a lot of what's going on in here involves kind of more to do with the fabric of society. You know, one household that is um going to be aligned with another or allied to another household and and what goes on in a lot of these sexual scenes is not just one individual wronging another but um the betrayal of one family against another which will probably be compounded with all sorts of um lies and and other sins and and i think a lot of that is just helpful to to keep in mind in sort of working our way through a, a difficult chapter like this. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And uh, the one one way to put it would be that these the the parties, the sexual partners are not considered as individuals. They're not independent actors. The women in every case are being defined by the relation to to a man, either they're, whether they're in their father's house as virgins, uh, if they're married, then uh, the actual phrasing of verse 22 
is uh, the uh, woman is baaled to a baal. It's uh, the verb baal and the noun baal. It's a term for lordship, but it's the same term that's used for the false god, the idol baal. So she's related to a man. The the woman, the women who are engaged, are obviously defined by the relation to men. But uh, the men are also being kind of defined by their embeddedness in a network of social relations, particularly with other men. So if a man falsely accuses his wife, then he's got to deal with the parents. Uh, if he sleeps with a married woman, obviously he's dealing with uh, another man's wife or an engaged woman. Uh, if he sleeps with the virgin, then he's got to deal with the, with the father. So neither party is being treated as if they were just totally detached in this kind of blissful um uh, sexual paradise where there's nothing in the world exists except for the two lovers. Uh, that's a, that's a fiction anyway. Uh, that's a fiction in any case, and that's just not the way that these laws are dealing with them. I also wonder the extent to which we need to see these laws very much as prudential and contextual applications of the deeper principles, and to see this very much as limited by the context of the society and the social order to which this was being applied. And so there is a danger of trying to move directly from these sorts of laws to our own situation, rather than move from these laws to and from the core commandments, in this case, the seventh commandment, and relating that to the society within which this was applied discerning the wisdom of that within that context, and then prudentially considering the wisdom of laws applying the same overriding principle of the seventh commandment within our very different social context. And I, I think in certain cases, there's been a short circuiting of that within conservative reform circles, where people have sought to move a bit too directly from these laws applied to a very distinctive social order from our own. And while um, rejecting the ways that some have just brushed these laws aside, the process of deliberation that should inform our application of these principles to our own situation, those have not been properly undertaken. And so there's been too much of a, a failure to recognize some of the constraints, for instance, that these laws were operating within, and some of the constraints that don't have bearing upon us anymore, for instance, with um, certain forms of, I don't know if we have certain forms of testing that we can apply in these cases. There are ways in which these laws wouldn't apply in quite the same way, but the same principle of the Seventh Commandment does. Yeah, um, I don't disagree in, in principle with what you just said, Alistair, but I'm curious to know at what level you're applying that? What what what's what's in this passage that you think is no longer relevant given our current cultural situation? What kinds of things? I mean, you mentioned a kind of technological. I'm assuming you mean kind of methods of investigation. That the kind of thing you have in mind. But what 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 sorts of things are you thinking are not uh, so directly applicable? I would say there are a lot of things that aren't so directly applicable. I would say things like the method of um, judgment, stoning to death with stones, that's a contextual judgment that we see those principles applied in the New Testament to things like excommunication. And that doesn't mean that there are no places for capital punishment. 
I do think, though, that there's not a as straightforward a case as we can just transport from the Old Testament applications to the New Testament without a considerable intervening process of deliberation concerning the differences between the ways these things were applying in different cultures. Also, the familial structure. It's very clear that this is in a society without where the family is very much the pillar and the focus and the the centre of the social fabric. Now, that should be the case in any society. But when we talk about the family, it's a very different sort of entity from the family that we encounter here. And so we need to be where I think of translating wholesale from the sorts processes of judgment that are occurring here, where the role of the young woman's family, for instance, the elders of the city, these things won't translate directly into our cultural forms. That doesn't mean that the principles of justice and jurisprudence and wisdom that are embedded in this law and the law is given very much at the very beginning as of Deuteronomy is something that the other nations should see and be struck by its wisdom. And so it seems to me that we should be looking for wisdom in these laws that should inform our own approach to constructing laws. But even within the law itself, it seems that there are ways in which the law changes from one context to another. The laws in Exodus are slightly different than the laws of Deuteronomy on the, these issues. That doesn't mean they're in conflict with each other, but there is maybe a change in the situation, not least from the situation in the wilderness to a situation where they're going to be moving into the land, they'll be living in cities, there'll be different sorts of realities that the laws have to accommodate themselves to. And so I think that's the sort of process of deliberation that we have to engage in. And that will change the way that we think about certain punishments. It will change the way that certain agents are active within the structures. Um, we don't have the same familial structure of judgment. Um, we have police, we have other agents, agencies that are involved. And so we need to consider how we might um, apply the same wisdom that led to these laws for this culture as an application of the enduring law of the ten um to our own very different contexts yeah again i don't i don't disagree in principle i, I think they're uh kind of i have a couple of reservations or i think there are risks in the kind of procedure you're talking about one would be that uh what ends up happening effectively is that a current cultural situation becomes determinative and uh because there's such a significant cultural difference the law doesn't actually impact anything because you it get, it just gets dissipated because uh, of cultural differences i'm not i'm not suggesting you're proposing that but i think that's a that's a risk if you're and then i guess the other question is at what level uh at what level do you find permanence you're you're repealing to uh the 10 words as kind of the permanent law others as a as a uh, application in a particular setting again don't disagree in principle but then i still want to ask what aspects of the particular laws and the particular applications of the seventh seventh commandment or others has permanent 
authority and which doesn't. And and there are different levels where that can happen. When when I'm in my little book on the, just to give an example, my little book on the ten words, I talk about the fifth commandment on your father and mother, and suggest that there isn't a some assumed family form there. That's for sure. Uh, there's an, a family form that assumes there are two parents, uh, two parents that share children. There's a whole kind of sociology of the family that's implied in that commandment. Um, and you could go one of two ways. We say it, you, you have to make adjustments in how it applies because of the, the cultural differences or the difference in family structure. Or you could say um, the, the law actually implies a certain kind of family that we should be trying to uh trying to establish that two parent families are good. That's the, uh, that's assumed norm. Uh, and it's, it's disordered uh, in a culture that doesn't have two parent families. So that's just an example of the question about levels of reasoning. Um, you can still apply on your father and mother in situations where there's all this disordered family, but does the commandment also imply this um, impetus to, to try to, uh, reform institutions in a way that matches what what's what's found in scripture i think it does i th- i think however there's no shortcut we have to engage in uh, the task of wisdom and discernment um when jesus talks about the law concerning divorce he talks about it as an accommodation to israel's hardness of heart it's not the ideal it's not the way things ought to be and that law is a good law it's not a bad law, but it's a law that's accommodated to bad realities and a sinful society. And in that respect, there are, I mean, the classic examples that are given in the tradition are things like accommodation to the the difficulty of not being able to get rid of prostitution, for instance. And that is clearly a, a very wicked reality. And yet, um, within certain cultures, that just is something that can't be uprooted. And so the question of how to wisely apply these enduring principles to a very specific cultural reality is one that I think many people have um, not thought enough about. Um, The way in which clearly we're trying to move towards the application and the fulfillment of these core principles in their positive form. And yet, we have to work out what is justice in this particular context? What is the way in which we can enact justice that accommodates itself to the actual realities on the ground so that the law, for instance, can be effective? There are situations where the law could present some ideal, and if it were everything legislated according to that ideal, it would be completely unattainable and the law would lose its authority for that reason. And so there's a process of discernment and deliberation that is required for any good law for a particular society. And we can't move wholesale from the law of Deuteronomy to our society. That doesn't mean that this isn't the material to be reflecting upon to learn the sort of wisdom of jurisprudence. And so that task is not going, there's never a sort of just turn the lever of the biblical approach and out comes the laws for your society. There's always a deep process of reflection upon the logic, the inner logic of the law itself, not least, which I think is one of the things that 
Deuteronomy gives us with the relationship between the core principles and the expanded symbolic commandments, um, case laws, etc. And that's what Christ is doing in um, his treatment of divorce, where he takes the deeper teaching of Moses found in Genesis 1 and 2 and sees the law concerning divorce in the light of that. And so that sort of process is required for us too. Alistair, I wonder if some of the points you're making could be helped or, or, or supported in, in some way by the allusions to Genesis 34 that you mentioned. I mean, the verbal connections between what we've been looking at in um, Deuteronomy 22 and the Shechem son of Hamor story are uh, quite striking. I mean, there there is um, the connection that you mentioned before with Hamor and the donkey and the ox and and the um prophecy to Simeon and and Levi um there is obviously uh Dinah and the verbs attached to her where she is uh, violated or raped um she, humili- uh, she's seized um by the person so I think it's a different verb has the same um sense there's a, a mention of hundred shekels um and then there's a hundred i think it's a different currency it might be xita or something in um uh used to buy the land in in the shechem story and and many others and kind of thinking about the correlation between the two i mean basically i mean look diner is is wrong there's there's no two ways about that but by the end of the story in genesis 34 um Nothing is fixed. I mean, m- m- she had someone willing to marry her. Now, by the end of the story, she's left, um, you know, possibly with a, a child on the way. Um, Jacob's household, he says, is a, is a stink to the land. There's um, tension in the family because of what Simeon and Levi has done. Her potential husband has been um, murdered. The family has lots. Like, I mean, she is left now in this awful situation. And you wonder to what extent some of what um, goes on in chapter 22 is kind of um, meant to avoid some of those um, evils uh, at the end of the day. And then coming back to what you were saying, the... um, extent to which a different society where perhaps life is slightly easier for a single parent um might invite a different um a different interpretation of some of deuteronomy 22 i mean that doesn't mean obviously as peter was saying that you're wanting uh, to be happy with a society where um single parenting is is the norm or anything like that but it it, it may argue for a, a kind of um, a tailoring of the laws to a different um, different society. I don't know. Yeah, thanks. That's a good discussion. And again, I, I don't disagree, Alistair. I'm just, uh, I'm concerned about, uh, I'm concerned about how that process works. And uh, I want scripture to be able to speak and speak with certain degree of specificity into, into a very different cultural situations and not, not let that be blunted by the fact that we do live in a different cultural situation. I want to turn the discussion to something specific in our text, if I may. Uh, and that is the, there's a false accusation. We're still on the, uh, still on the man bringing a false accusation or bringing an accusation uh, against his wife. 
he charges her with not being a virgin. The father and mother bring out, according to verse 15, the girl's virginities. Uh, it's a, maybe James can help uh, with the, the the form here. It's a, it's just a plural, a masculine plural, I think, of the word for virgin. The same thing is uh, true a, a little bit later on. This is my daughter's virginities in verse 17. Something is brought, a thing is brought, verse 17. Uh, there's a garment that's spread before the elders that's serving as evidence. One common interpretation, and happy to hear other other ways of uh, of understanding that. One common interpretation is this is the these are the sheets of the of the uh, of the wedding night. If she was a virgin, she her hymen would have been ruptured by her first sexual encounter, and there would be blood on the sheets, and there would be an evidence that uh, and the and the parents are have had this in safekeeping in order to present it in case of suspicion about her virginity, something like that. I mean, one problem with that is that seems odd that the husband wouldn't know that this is the case. Um, oh, he was there after all. If uh, if this is if these are the sheets of the wedding night, then he was there when uh, uh, when she was you know when they had their first sexual intercourse. Why does he make this false accusation when he knows there's evidence? One other su- suggestion, I think this comes from Gordon Wenham. Maybe uh, one suggestion is that it's not it's still a bloody garment. But it's not the bloody garment. It's not the bloody sheet of a wedding night, but rather uh, evidence of the girl's um, menstruation at the time of uh, her marriage. So the 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 presumption there would be something like uh, he suspects her of being of not being a virgin when they married because uh, they're three months married and she's looking like she's six months pregnant. So and he knows it's not his child. So uh, that's I think that's the kind of scenario that Wenham suggests. Uh, but what what is the evidence? What are what is the virginity that's being presented to the uh, to the husband and to, actually to the elders? Personally, I, I have no idea, and I was hoping not to um, have to go into it in too much de- detail in this podcast. Too late for that. I've generally seen it as the um, bed sh- the marital bed sheets. Yeah, that's a, that's a very traditional interpretation, but. Uh, um, Jim Jordan has uh, uh, drawn on that assumption and uh, kind of allegorized from that. I mean, I think that uh, just to take a step back, I think one of the things we can keep in mind as we're going through these laws of uh, sexual relations is the analogy of Yahweh's relationship to Israel as a marital relationship. And so uh, there's kind of an allegorical, all of these laws are kind of haunted by potential allegories of Israel's relation to Yahweh and Yahweh's relationship to Israel. And what, what Jim suggests is that um, you have uh, something like a, uh, if you think allegorically of this, you have bride Israel. Uh, she receives an accu- accusation of not being a virgin. She's been with other gods, been with other men before her covenant with Israel. I mean, historically that's in fact the case. I mean, they're called from, uh, they're called from, uh, Abram is called from Ur of the Chaldees, where he's uh, worshiping the gods of gods of Ur. Israel is worshiping the gods of Egypt. Uh, while they're in Egypt, they're called. They're told to put away those gods later on, and so they, in fact, have been with others. And so the accusation is true. Uh, so how can they present the the evidence of their virginity and and be reconciled to Yahweh and not come under the death penalty that's uh, required in verse twenty and twenty one? Uh, and the suggestion is that the Lord Himself provides the the blood of the bridal sheets. So it, it turns into kind, it turns into an allegory of the cross, 
uh, and a, a a version, a way of thinking about uh, justification that Jesus, in shedding his blood, provides the evidence of his bride's virginity. His bride is not a virgin, and yet uh, because uh, the bridegroom sheds his blood, uh, the bride is judged a virgin. So I've taught that for a long time because I learned it from Jim. As I've been working through this, uh, other proposals have come up, and I'm I'm a little less confident about that idea than I was before. I think the allegory is right. There's kind of some kind of allegorical dimension to these laws, but um, I'm less confident that the that the uh, the evidence is a bridal, the sheet of the wedding night. I, I've looked at these very little. I, I just um, looked up what Rashi says about it. Who, I guess, you know, maybe in possession of a. a knowledge of how this was interpreted over time. And um, he says, as his comment on they shall spread the garment, he says something like this is an an allegory, um, meaning they shall clarify the thing um, like a garment. And so um, I'm not saying that's sort of authoritative or anything, but that makes it sound as if in his time it it had become figuratively um done that there was some sort of um process but the the garment wasn't sort of the all important thing anymore and then the question is is this requiring uh is there a stipulation here of certain practices surrounding marriage to ensure that this evidence is given to the bride's family that they take the um wedding sheets whatever it is or is this something that could include other forms of evidence? For instance, that those bringing forward the charge are perjuring themselves. Um, it seems to me that that's likely a possibility that this would be applied in a way that allowed for other sorts of evidence or um, explanation. For instance, this is the idea that none bloody wedding sheets would be proof of the woman um, being unfaithful um, is just not the case. There could be other reasons for the loss of the hymen. So it seems if we're going to rest everything upon this being sure proof one way or another, I think we have a problem. Yeah. And yet it seems other possibilities would be allowed for in a wise application of this. Yeah, the yeah. garment would be sufficient, but there would be other ways evidence could be brought forward. Yeah. I mean, we know from the Joseph story that it's possible to have a bloody garment as evidence without the person who owned the garment being killed. Uh, a couple of things I want to bring up right at the end of this section, verses 20 and 21. This is if the charge is true, uh, if the girl is not a virgin and or can't prove her virginity before the elders, then she's brought to the doorway of her father's house. That's significant. The father is the one, again, who brings the evidence, father and mother bring the evidence, defending her, uh, his his daughter's virginity. He's the one who's paid the fine. So as I, I said, I think in the last episode that there's there's a, a uh, an offense, uh, a kind of uh, analogical sacrilege against the holiness of the name of the house and of the father that needs to be compensated if it's a false accusation. If it's not a false accusation, then the door of the house has been defiled the girl, uh, insofar as she is a doorway, that's uh, imagery that's used, uh, sexual imagery that's used in some other places in, in the Bible. The girl's own doorway has been defiled, and so she's put to death at the house. It's the, it's, the, it's the household, not just the girl who's been 
who's been shamed by this. And it's also, I think, significant that it's the city, the men of the city who are involved in the execution. So it's not just a, it's not just, a, it's not just members of the family. It's not just the two sexual partners that are involved. And it's not just members of the family that are involved, but this is because it's a public accusation. Uh, it becomes a public event and the execution has to be a public act. At the end of the verse, verse 21 indicates again, that it's uh, a threat that her behavior is a threat, not just to her family's reputation or her reputation, but it's a threat to Israel. Uh, it's a threat to the city and it's a threat to Israel. Uh, it's evil that has to be purged like the evil of innocent blood that's shed on the ground. It's evil that has to be purged like um, uh, idolatry has to be purged. All the different things that Deuteronomy says have to be purged from the land. Now we have uh, sexual impurity that has uh, defiled at least the city, if not the land, uh, and it has to be purged. Uh, so it's a. This con connects with what we talked about, I think in the in the earlier in last episode about the the fact that this is not just uh, the 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 man and the woman are not just individual actors and not treated as independent of the of the society in which they live, but uh, their actions are hold implications both for their families and for the wider society. The next section, uh, verses twenty two to twenty nine. Uh, has four cases of illicit sexual relations. And there are two different variables that are operating here that are explicit. One is uh, the, the marital status of the woman. So we start out with uh, a man lying with a married woman. That's verse 22. Then the next couple of scenarios have to do with a man lying with a virgin who is engaged to a man. Clearly, it's engaged to another man because she's... She's treated as a violation and assault on the, the other man. Uh, and then we get to the end, verses 28 and 29, and it's the virgin who is still in her father's house. So the, the marital status of the woman uh, affects the punishment and affects the way that these different uh, scenarios are treated. Uh, and it's also the location, at least with the engaged woman. If, that encounter, if the encounter takes place in the city, verse 23 says, then uh, both the man and the woman are put to death on the presumption that uh, the woman is consenting. And if she didn't consent, she would have resisted and cried out and somebody would have come to her aid. That, that seems to be the presumption. Uh, and then in the other scenario uh, with the engaged woman, it's uh, out, in the, out in the open field or in the country, verse 25. So, and there the presumption of, of the law is given. The presumption is that the woman has been uh, that has cried out, she's resisted, but there just wasn't anybody around within earshot who could come to her aid. So that's a that's a basic sketch of what's going on. One of the things I find interesting in the in the kind of wider portrait, verse twenty five, uh, verse twenty four rather, the presumption is, is is if they have a sexual encounter, a man or woman, man and engaged woman have a sexual encounter in the city, if the woman did not want it to happen, if she's not consenting, then she would have cried out and somebody would have been around to hear and somebody would have intervened to help. That's a, that's a whole series of assumptions that are, of course, any one of those might not be the case. Uh, she might not cry out. She might cry out and nobody hears. She might cry out and people hear and, and nobody helps her anyway. Uh, they just ignore the cries. But I think that the, the assumption of, uh, is that a, a properly operating city, if you will, is one in which if a girl cries out because somebody is seizing her, and she doesn't want to be 
she wants to have this sexual. She doesn't want this man to take her sexually. Uh, if she cries out, there will be people in earshot, and that those people will take right responsibility for intervening and saving her from that attack. Which I, th that interestingly fits with other things that we found, where uh, there's uh, responsibility on the part of Israelites to care for one another. The assumption is that people won't are not allowed to just ignore each other's problems, and and uh, I mean it's most explicit back in beginning of chapter twenty. I guess the beginning of this chapter, chapter twenty-two, where the you find a, a sheep or a, an ox that's straying, you can't just ignore it. You can't just leave it alone. If you hear a woman crying out, you can't close your ears to it. The assumption is that if uh, if there's people within earshot, they will come to come to her aid. There's this kind of communal responsibility that's assumed by that uh, by that stipulation. There have been attempts. I'm not sure, kind of who you've read on this, but there have been attempts to make the uh, last case. So in um, verse 28 onwards, as um, consensual on the woman's behalf, on the unbetrothed um, virgin's behalf, which I, I find incredibly difficult to sustain contextually, just because the scenario in 28, the um, man seizes her, lies with her, is exactly the same as verse 25, where the outcome is precisely that uh, verse 26 this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor so it's clearly non consensual there and as a result the man is is um uh is punished he, he he's put to death and the yeah it then seems to me very difficult to read seizes her and lies with her as as anything other than forces himself upon her i think from what I can gather, the way in which that's generally done is to um, emphasise the parallel with Exodus 22, which I'm just um, looking for. Verse um, 15, or here, here it is. Um, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, so here rather than seized, you've got seduces, um, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. And so it's claimed that we should kind of read what's going on in Deuteronomy um, 22 more as seduction than seizing, but I'm not at all um, convinced by that. Yeah, and, and I share your puzzlement, but I, there is a difference in the terminology uh, than the verb that's used. Um, verse 25, it's chasak, uh, force, strength. Uh, in uh, verse uh, 28, seize, it, it's not the same verb. Uh, I don't have the verb in front of me right now, but it's a different tafas, uh, which I don't. I didn't investigate the, the verb. But it, yeah, you're right that the first, uh, the earlier one, not only does it use the stronger, what appears to be a stronger verb, but then goes on to describe this uh, assault as being equivalent to murder. So, uh, I mean, uh, that that difference of terminology might open up the possibility of bringing the Exodus passage in. So, uh, seizing is not grabbing hold of her, but taking her in a in the sense of sedu seducing her. Well, one possible carry cross that occurs 
to me is that on the basis of um the father being able to um refuse to to give the woman to the man in in Exodus 22 it occurs to me that it would seem reasonable to assume that the father has the same freedom in this final case in in Deuteronomy 22 um I wouldn't kind of die on that as a sort of principle but it, it seems reasonable to me that that he does have the right to refuse but but if uh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. but if he doesn't refuse then the this requirement kicks in that they have to they have to remain married without the poss- married without the possibility of divorce yeah that that seems that seems reasonable to me i think i want to go back to the the analogy between murder and rape because uh versus uh, verse 24 or 25 rather does envision uh, does envision rape not just not just seduction uh and verse 25 and then 26 and the analogy with murder it's um just as a man rises against his neighbor and kills his soul is the way it's phrased in verse 26 the phrasing of rising up against the neighbor that's the that's the language that's used back in chapter 19 when when it's talking about uh, the uh cities of cities of refuge a man who rises up against his neighbor if he rises up premeditated murder if he rises up with hatred then he's murdering that's the same kind of uh that's the same language that's used here and then this explicit connection with murder which it's a the analogy as i take it is not uh this is an assault the the rapist is assaulting the man who is engaged to the woman it's not it's it's not rising against his neighbor and murdering him but rather it's killing the soul of the woman that he's raping uh which is a a pretty strong statement about the evil of rape uh and and you know again justifies the the penalty which is death uh for the man and also the the link with various cases of in, uh shedding of blood uh and the the need to purge the land of innocent blood so this act of sexual violence is treated as if it were a kind, as if it were a species of murder. And I guess I, a part of what I'm thinking is it's just psychologically that's uh, women who are raped uh, frequently have the uh, have the experience of of dying, dying internally. Not they're in a state of uh, of kind of living death, and the Bible seems to acknowledge that that analogy. It's not it's not just uh, uh, there's a real relationship between sexual violation violent sexual violation and and murder what do we make of for instance the possibility of a woman who's seized in the city and she doesn't cry out in fear while she's being raped but runs for help as soon as um the rape is over what uh, would that be covered by the principle of um, crying out you mean like uh, uh amnon and tamar yes yeah, I, it seems like that would be because, um, I mean, you could you could uh, can imagine a scenario where uh, the woman is kind of consenting, then regrets it, lodges an accusation later. So I think there would there would have to be assessment and judgments to be made there. But uh, I think, you know, a woman who is prevented from crying out in some fashion uh, and immediately reports, immediately seeks aid, uh, I think that would that would come under the come under the form of crying out for help. Yeah. I guess one, one of the things that occurred to me is the, the, uh, I mean, there, we, we can obviously think of cross cross scenarios, a woman in a city 
who does cry out and nobody hears a woman in the country who is deliberately in the country with her lover, an engaged woman in the country, deliberately in the country with a lover who is other than another man than her fiance so that they won't be found out. And she doesn't cry out, but the presumption is that she does. So the crying out, not crying out doesn't obviously doesn't correspond necessarily to city and country. The, the link is made because again, if you're in a city, then there are people within reach of your cries. If you're in the country, then there aren't. But I think one of the interesting uh, implications of this, it seems, is the kind of in, inverted role that consent plays in these scenarios. In our current situation, consent is the kind of universal sanctifier of sexual relations. As long as you get a firm yes, uh, then you can do whatever you like with a, a sexual partner. There's no, There are no restrictions, uh, and it's good and healthy and right so long as consent is granted. Uh, but you have uh, you have occasions, uh, even if verses 28 and 29 is not seduction, but something more like force, uh, you still presumably have the woman. The woman in, uh, in the city uh, is, I think, presumed to consent. That's what the implication of she doesn't, she did not cry out. She's presumed to consent to what's happened. And yet that is, uh, uh, she, she's guilty precisely because she did consent. Because she uh, is not trying to resist uh, the man, uh, a man who's making an unwanted sexual advance, but precisely because she did consent, she's found guilty. So consent does not have a have this kind of sanctifying effect on uh, sexual relations that it does in our in our culture. Yes, I mean, I think I was saying at the start of the episode, it's easy to look back on laws like this as if we've got all these things sorted. I mean, there are basically the situation that is um, uh, outlined here. Um, victims of rape are, are assumed to be innocent in, 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 in that sense. There's actually a presumption of guilt um, uh, on the guy, if it can't be proven either way. Um, women, it seems, are expected to report rapes and those rapes are expected to be taken seriously and um those convicted of men convicted of rape are killed and i would say all those things are goods are good states of affairs that our current society has none of basically um and and so there's there, there's kind of a lot a lot to be said for it Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.